0: This message by C.J. Mahaney was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. C.J. serves as the senior pastor for Sovereign Grace Church of Louisville. Please turn in your Bible to the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 2. Even a superficial survey of the headlines each day informs us that our country is deeply divided. And while there are differing opinions about what divides us, there is no disagreement that we are divided. We we are the divided United States of America, divided politically, racially socially, economically, but this painful reality is not a modern phenomenon. It is in fact the story of the human race. Holy Scripture informs us it is the effect of the fall and began with the entrance of sin into the world. Sin not only creates a defiant disposition of heart toward God that begins in Genesis three. It also introduces the harsh reality of hostility toward each other and conflict with each other that continues until the very closing chapter of the book of Revelation. And every social or political attempt to address this divisive hostility in order to bring about reconciliation and unity, no matter how well-intentioned, will always fail. John Lennon encouraged us to imagine, imagine, quote, all the people living life in peace and by imagining this the world will be as one. But fallen mankind will never be able to attain this dream regardless of how hard we work at imagining or creating peace. However, God has graciously intervened in order to rescue us from sin and the penalty of sin and reconcile sinners like you and me not only to Himself, but to each other as well. And our passage this morning stunningly reveals what God has done To end relational hostility between ethnicities, Jew and Gentile in particular, and create peace and unity among people who were previously divided. These verses should govern how every Christian is to think and act and feel, particularly at this moment. Are ultimate hope for reconciliation and an end to all hatred and hostility is not found in a political or social solution. It is found in the reconciliation that God has acted to create. And it is that reconciliation that Christians should imagine. Because only this reconciliation can produce peace. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. We have the privilege this morning of being addressed by God Himself. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through Him We both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then. Into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. After describing the work of salvation that God has graciously accomplished for individuals previously alienated from Him because of their sin in verses 1 through 10... Paul transitions in verse 11 to remind the predominantly Gentile audience about the alienation and hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile and discloses the divine remedy. The dominant idea of this passage is the reconciliation and unity God has acted to create across ethnic lines in the death of Christ, now displayed by a new community. And the important theme of unity in the church, made up of Jewish and Gentile believers once alienated from each other, is not limited to this passage, but actually is a running theme throughout the letter including the well-known passage in chapter 4 where Paul commands them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit In the bond of peace. This this theme that runs throughout this letter seems to indicate the presence of relational tension between Jewish and Gentile believers within the church located in Western Asia Minor. And certainly the book of Acts reveals this tension. And in order to help the Gentile Christians understand their new identity in Christ and its implications for the unity of the church, Paul exhorts them in verse 11 to remember. Remember the alienation that previously existed between Jews and Gentiles as well as the theological deficiencies of the Gentiles prior to their conversion. Therefore, verse 11, remember. This call to remember is the only imperative in this passage. It appears twice in verse 11 and verse 12. Paul is commanding theologically informed remembering. They are to remember because it is easy to forget. Paul is a wise pastor, having already reminded them of their pre-conversion plight in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, because... Longer you are a Christian, the easier it is to forget your once desperate condition requiring God's gracious intervention. So after reminding them of their previous estrangement from God, in chapter two, verses one through three, now in verse 11, he exhorts them to remember their previous estrangement from God's covenant people, the Jews. Verse 11. Remember. That at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So this actually would be a reminder of the alienation between Jew and Gentile. Being called the uncircumcision by the Jews, the circumcision, wasn't a term of endearment, but actually a derogatory designation revealing their disdain for the unclean Gentiles. And then Paul actually takes a divinely inspired shot at the Jews and their need for salvation when he writes, which is made in the flesh by hands. So for the Jews, their circumcision was by human hands. What they need is a circumcision of the heart that only God can perform through the gospel, part from which the physical act of circumcision is insufficient and irrelevant. And then Paul repeats his exhortation to remember. And he gives them the specifics they are to remember. Verse 12 Remember, remember that. And then Paul reminds the Gentile readers of their most unimpressive spiritual resume, beginning with the first and most serious entry Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. And not only were they separated from Christ, but they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So, because they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, they were strangers to the covenants of promise. Therefore, they, the Gentiles, had no expectation of a coming Messiah and no hope of deliverance through the Messiah. The Gentiles were idolaters. They worshiped false gods as idolatry was a thriving industry in Ephesus. So, the Gentiles prior to conversion were both hopeless and godless. And then everything changed. Everything changed, and everything changed, and all because of Christ. Verse 13, but now... This is the same form Paul adopted when reminding them of their personal salvation earlier in chapter 2. Everything has changed. Everything has changed for them in their relationship with God because of the death of Christ and their union with Christ. And God Himself did this. This was His gracious act and it was made possible by the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And Christ and His saving work has changed everything for them, not only in their relationship with God, but also their relationship with Jewish Christians as well. Verse 14, for he himself is, notice, our peace, who has made us both one. So this theme of peace Is really peppered throughout this section. It makes an appearance in verse 14, verse 15, twice in verse 17. Christ not only brings peace, Paul informs us, no, he himself is our peace. And in his commentary, John Stott describes these verses as the portrait of the peacemaking Christ, he is the peacemaker. He is the peacemaker between God and individual sinners and he is the peacemaker between different ethnicities, Jew and Gentile, previously separated from each other and hostile toward each other. The Prince of Peace, Paul makes clear, is our peace. Not simply my peace, our peace. Christ is our peace who has made us both one. He has brought together those previously estranged from each other. He has brought them together, listen, giving them a new identity and creating a new community, and He has done so through His atoning death. And then Paul describes just how Christ himself and his death created this reconciliation between those previously separated from each other and hostile toward each other in verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and paul isn 't done with the sentence yet <laughs> oh my this 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 passage, and it 's so common for paul 's writing paul 's writing is very dense in content and and it's it 's like listen, as you read just imagine this man, he is caught up in the wonder and the glory of all he is writing. So at times the man doesn't take a breath. He doesn't. He doesn't take a breath. You you, you could describe Paul as as, uh, more apt to use a comma than a period. Sentences just go on and on and on and on. Through his death on the cross, the dividing wall of hostility was removed. So The Mosaic law created a distinction. It created a distinction between Jew and Gentile. It created a dividing wall. And the court of the Gentiles in the temple of Jerusalem, it would be a reminder of that distinction. So in keeping the Mosaic law, the Jews separated themselves from the Gentiles in order to maintain their distinction as the people of God and make clear the holiness of God. This is a a religious form of social distancing. Their keeping of the Mosaic law would include circumcision, all the dietary restrictions, the Jewish calendar that included the Sabbath and the festivals, and all of these distinctions would create social and relational differences between Jew and Gentile. Now, the Mosaic law was intended to set God's people apart, not in an exclusive way, but as an example of what it looked like to live in covenant relationship with God, to live for the glory of God. However, this also created a social and cultural separation between Jew and Gentile, and most importantly, given the depraved heart, hostility between them as well. So the hostility between Jews and Gentiles was commonly deep, it was palpable, and there is a lengthy history of conflict between them that is religious and social and racial. And in his excellent book, Bloodlines, Race, Cross, and the Christian, John Piper reminds us, keep in mind, keep in mind that the divide between Jews and Gentiles was not small or simple or shallow, it was huge and complex and deep. It was as intractable as any ethnic hostilities we experience today. (laughs) Thus, the relevance of this passage for us today. And then Jesus did what no one else could do by perfectly keeping the law and by bearing the penalty of the law in his death, he made it possible for Jew and Gentile both to have access to God and to come near to God. He made it possible for the Gentiles who were far from God and the Jews who were near to God. He and He alone made it possible for both to come near to God through Him, not the Mosaic law. He removed The dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. And in his commentary, Daryl Bach describes the removal of this dividing wall when he writes, it is the wall that Jesus destroys by what He did with the law in His flesh. Not the law itself, as aspects still have value, but the attitudes and conditions of separation that the law produced. So, circumcision, the dietary laws, the Sabbath, the festivals, the temple, animal sacrifices, the list goes on. All that separated Jew and Gentile, they no longer have significance because Christ Himself is our God. Peace. They no longer have significance because Christ and Him crucified is now the unifying center of the church. And He removed the dividing wall of hostility, so verse 15, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So, because of Him, because of His substitutionary death, All Christians, all of them, Jew, Gentile, regardless of ethnicity, share one identity as the people of God in Christ. He has created one new man. This is something completely new, completely new, and something that only He could create through His So this isn't Gentiles becoming Jews or moving into the Jewish world or space. This isn't Gentiles in any way transitioning to a Jewish world. No, no. This is Jew and Gentile finding a new identity in Christ and Christ alone as one new man, and this identity is the most important identity transcending their ethnic identity. And then in verse 16, Paul actually reminds us of a different hostility, an even more serious hostility that needed to be removed in order for this reconciliation between Jew and Gentile to take place. Verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is a different hostility because the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile begins with those of both ethnicities being reconciled to God through Christ's death on the cross. So actually this verse is addressing their alienation from God because of their sin. This verse is addressing a different, is a different hostility in verse 16, different hostility than verse 14. The previous hostility was between Jew and Gentile. This hostility notice is between God and man. This hostility is the hostility of Jew and Gentile in relation to God Himself. And they need to remember this hostility. J.I. Packer succinctly describes this mutual hostility when he writes, men are opposed to God in their sin, And God is opposed to men in His holiness. So this verse reminds us of God's holy hostility toward us, Jew or Gentile, because of our sin. And this reminds us of our wicked hostility toward God in our sin. Christ absorbed The holy hostility of God against our sin on the cross, bearing our wicked hostility toward God in our place, him who knew no sin became sin in order to satisfy God's justice and wrath and secure our reconciliation with God. I like, I like a lot how John Stott describes this in his commentary when he writes, And only through the cross have both hostilities been brought to an end. For when Christ bore our sin and judgment on the cross, God turned away His own wrath, and we, seeing His great love, turned away ours also. Thus." Christ killed or slew the hostility. So, the reconciliation between Jewish and Gentile Christians, the reconciliation that Jewish and Gentile Christians are to enjoy, it is based upon and only because of the cross of Christ that reconciles us to God. By His death on the cross, Christ kills the hostility that separates sinners from God and then alienates us from one another and then Paul reminds them and each of us by implication as we overhear this morning of how their conversion took place conveying Christ's purpose for coming and love for sinners like you in verse 17 and he came and preached peace to you and he came and preached peace to you who were far off And peace to those who were near. For through Him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We we are meant to feel God's affection for sinners like you and me. You, if you're a Christian, are meant to feel God's affection as you contemplate this passage after Christ secured this peace by bearing our sin as our sin bearing wrath absorbing substitute after he secured this peace Paul informs us he preached peace he preached peace to them What's he mean there? Well, he preached peace to them because remember in each of his post-resurrection appearances, remember the first word he said wherever he showed up. Remember what he said? Peace. Peace. And then he preached peace or continued to preach peace through the apostles and the church proclaiming the gospel. So you might not have been aware of it. You just read a description of your conversion. If you are converted, that is a description of your conversion. And I love this description of our conversion. And I think we are meant to, well, I know we are meant to feel Christ's affection in what is revealed in this description of our conversion. What a What a sweet moment it was on Friday when Bill... Informed me that Friday was the 43rd anniversary of his conversion and Sherry's conversion. What a privilege and joy it was to be here on that anniversary. 43 years ago, August 21st was a Sunday. Bill was converted that morning, went to church with Sherry. Sherry was converted later in the day. How kind of the Lord! oh my here's what Bill and Sherry need to be reminded of this morning and all of us behind whoever preached the gospel to them resulting in their conversion behind that individual was Christ himself ultimately do you know who was preaching peace to them? Ultimately, do you know who's preaching peace to you through their proclamation of the gospel? Christ himself. Behind whoever preached the gospel to you. I talked to the friend who preached the gospel to me. Oh my, it's somewhat unthinkable now. Now, some 48 years ago, I talked to him this past week providentially. Every time I interact with this individual who was the first person to preach the gospel to me, I always thank him at the end. I just say, listen, Bob, anytime I talk to you, I want to seize this opportunity to thank you for caring enough about me 48 years ago, making your way to my home to share the gospel with me. So that's how the conversation ended. That's how every conversation ends. It's the appropriate way for me to end the conversation with him. But when I hung up the phone, I thought of this passage. Oh, Lord, behind Bob's proclaiming the gospel and the only explanation for the effectiveness of that proclamation, you were present in that room. And ultimately, it was you preaching peace to me. The peace you had secured for me as my substitute bearing my sin and absorbing the wrath that I deserved for my sin. It was you after securing that peace through that horrific experience, dying in my place as my substitute and rising from the dead. It was you who was preaching peace to me, someone who richly deserved your wrath. And he Came and preached peace to you who were far off. If you were a Gentile, you were far off, far away, hopeless, godless, an object of his wrath. What explanation is there for you being here and not only singing with passion, not wanting the singing to end? Well, there's only one explanation. He came. He came to you through some human means. And he preached peace to you. And now, look at what's happened to you. You have peace with God. The hostility is over for you. You are forgiven of your sins, and you now live by God's grace, free from fear of future wrath. When you die and see him face to face, you will fall and thank him and worship him for what you see and who you see and what he has done. You were far off, hopeless, godless. Now You've been brought near. How have I been brought near? Through him who suffered in my place and him who suffered in my place, then, ha, He called individuals to proclaim that gospel. And down through the centuries, the gospel was proclaimed and transferred. And eventually, someone made their way to you and shared the gospel with you. But behind that individual was Christ himself. By the way, students, this should encourage you in your evangelism. When when you when you have the appropriate opportunity to share the gospel on campus this semester, over the next year, here's what you can know. Behind your sharing of the gospel, Christ himself is preaching peace to people. So let this strengthen you. You're not just out there on your own sharing. No, he is preaching peace. And he is preaching peace through you. So this passage actually informs us that Jesus is actively engaged in our evangelism. And we share the good news of peace with God through Christ Jesus is actively involved. Peace with God is offered through Christ and Him crucified. And listen, this is the only hope. This is the only hope for an end to our hostility toward God and one another. And again, to quote Mr. Bach, who insightfully notes, Paul ties the note of peace Notice, to Christ and not to Pax Romana. So understand, what we're reading here would be a counter-cultural note. Paul is, Paul is clearly articulating a note that was counter-cultural to the time. The way to bring people together was not through the structures of surrounding society, but through what Christ has done. And my friends, nothing has changed. He's still preaching peace, Jesus Christ is still preaching peace by His death through the church, and this is the only hope for true and lasting peace in our fractured culture. That the death of Christ is the basis for reconciliation with God, and it is the source of peace in the church. So, notice Paul makes a transition. Notice, so then, he writes in verse 19. So, no- notice, notice the progression of this passage. Verse 11, at one time. Verse 13, but now. Verse 19, so then, so then. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's of the household of God. And as living stones, you comprise a new temple. You comprise a new temple where God dwells. And John Piper writes of this important passage, How did Jesus accomplish His mission to end ethnocentrism? How did he create the new people of God who would be defined not by ethnic features, but by faith in Christ? He did it through his death. Probably no passage of Scripture is clearer than Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, that horizontal reconciliation between alienated peoples happens through vertical reconciliation with God through the blood of Christ. The enemies in this text have been brought near by the blood of Christ, near to God, and near to each other. Few passages in all the Bible have greater implications, not only for racial harmony, but also for how we understand the plan of God in history for the one people of God. So, horizontal reconciliation between alienated peoples happens through vertical reconciliation with God through the blood of Christ. How compellingly relevant for us. So, in a moment like this, when all manner of calls and demands are being issued in our culture, (laughs) my friends, we would be wise as Christians to instead unhurriedly reflect in a theologically informed way, remembering. Remembering our former desperate condition and plight, remembering God's gracious and costly intervention in our personal lives in Christ, and remembering that God's purpose for our lives is centered in the local church. This is our new identity, and we need to remember it, and we need to be reminded of it, because we are prone to forget We are prone to forget what is most important. Listen, if the original readers needed this command, well, so do we. We need to see ourselves in this text. We need to see the relevance of this text for the modern day context. Th- this is what we, this morning, must remember. So this text has theological relevance and it has application that extends beyond the fir- well beyond the first century hostility between Jew and Gentile. Th- this text actually addresses the racial division in every century, including the 21st century. Th- this is what we must remember because this is what applies anywhere. It applies to all ethnicities, social status, economic status. It applies to all of the above that threatens to divide Christians from one another. And in his excellent book, From Every People and Nation, A Biblical Theology of Race, author Daniel Hayes, I think, uh, effectively sums up what we need to remember when he writes… The New Testament proclaims that in Christ, believers form a new humanity. The old barrier of hostility and division between ethnic groups has been demolished by the cross. And now, all peoples of all groups are to be one in Christ. Our primary identity as humans is to be based on our union with Christ. And no longer based on traditional human sociological connections. This is a great statement here. Christians of other races, not just equal to us, they are joined to us. We are both part of the same body, united by the presence of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us both. That's, that's what we must remember. <laughs> we must remember and not forget that our primary identity as Christians is Christ. We must remember that individual Christians are called to serve alongside one another regardless of ethnicity in gospel proclaiming churches where the unique reconciling work of Christ can be on full display. Professor and author Kevin Van Hooser asks a very important and provocative question when he writes, what has the church to say and do that no other institution can say and do? And my answer to Professor Van Hooser would simply be, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Listen, my friends, the church is like no other institution because only the church proclaims the gospel of peace with God through Christ and peace with one another through Christ's death on the cross for our sin. Listen, it is only through the church that He comes and preaches peace to sinners like you and me. And the church, like no other institution, displays the transforming effect of the gospel because only in a gospel proclaiming church have the barriers of hostility and division between ethnic groups been demolished by the cross. So the identity and unity that the church uniquely displays is the transforming effect of the gospel and the attractiveness of the gospel to an observing culture. Listen, that's what's going down each Sunday in this church. Don't want you to miss what's happening here. Don't want you to miss what's happening. Each Sunday in this church, in Sovereign Grace Church of Louisville, and listen, our churches are not unique. Each Sunday in our local churches, the reconciling work of the peacemaker, Christ Himself, is proclaimed and on full display. Every Sunday, the gathering of the church is a miraculous Reminder, a remac- miraculous demonstration of Christ's work as peacemaker with God and each other. And by the way, each Sunday we gather, the only explanation for the different ethnicities represented in the church, the only explanation for the deep affection these ethnicities feel for one another, is because Christ Himself is our peace. And the church has become our new and most important family regardless of our ethnicities. Because Christians of other races and ethnicities are not just equal to us. They they don't just have equal access to God the Father through the person and work of Christ. No, they are joined to us. So I know this morning, gathering in Sovereign Grace Church of Louisville, there today would be Martin. Martin is Chinese. There would be Reuben. Reuben is African-American. Fabricio is there. He is Mexican. There's another Reuben there. He is Ecuadorian. John will be there this morning. He is from South Korea. The list could go on. What explanation is there For this diversity of ethnicities, gathering together, there is only one explanation. Christ Himself is our peace. (laughs) Apart from Christ, we would not be gathering together. And apart from Christ, there would no doubt be residual hostilities between one another. So, by the grace of God, this unique experience of reconciliation, not only with God, but with each other is is what is on display in the church and what we have a privilege to maintain and work out every day in our relationships with each other and in and through each and every conversation we have with each other because this is our fundamental identity and it is the only identity that will bring true and lasting reconciliation. And listen, I, I, I think scripture is clear we should not be distracted from what is most important. And we should not feel guilty for devoting ourselves to what is most important, particularly at this time. Two months ago, I was a part of an email chain among a number of friends. And in the midst of this lengthy email chain, uh, one of these individuals just, just voiced their concern for Christians at this time, their counsel for Christians. And here's what this individual wrote. I long for Christians to know that even though these issues are exceedingly complex, the way forward can still be fairly simple. Read your Bible. Raise your children in the Lord. Stay married. Go to church and listen to your pastor. Love your neighbor. Do good to your enemies. Pray for government officials. Don't join a mob. Just because an issue is truly multifaceted and complex doesn't mean the Christian life must also become a knot that is impossible to entangle. Listen, we've all heard the voices raised, well-meaning in some regards, I'm sure. Do something! Everybody do something! Well, what does that mean? Do what? Well, Often in our culture, do something means do something online. Do something people can see. Do something that will address our national problems. Tweet something. Write something on Facebook as if that is really something that's going to make a difference. I got a better answer, I think, formed by Scripture. Not original with me. I got no original thoughts this morning. Do something, here's what you do. Don't, don't be thinking that tweeting is doing something. It's not. Don't be thinking, oh, it's Facebook, oh my, my, no, no. Do something. What does that mean? Well, first of all, don't take upon yourself the burdens of the whole world. Uh, tried to care for a number of people. I just said, listen, I limit my media intake because I, only the government of it all rests comfortably on his shoulders, not on mine. And so if I'm listening to too much cable news or reading too much about all that's going on, it's like all this weight is being put on my little shoulders. I can't, can't. Solve national problems. Shouldn't have an expectation. You're going to ask me about solving national. Can't can't do it. Not equipped for it. So rather than being weighed down by this, as if I have some responsibility to solve. No. What what can I do? Oh, what can you do? This, you can do a lot in your ordinary life, through your ordinary day, why don't you give attention to your ordinary heart and preach the gospel to your heart and make your ordinary heart happy at the outset of the day. And then serve. Serve the people who are in front of you. Don't be thinking of media. Don't be thinking of technology. No, people. People. Your family, your church. And then in your relational world, everybody you come in contact with in a given day. I'll tell you what you can do you can display the effect of the gospel throughout your relational world you can reach out to others to serve them oh there's a lot you can do in a given day but you know what most of it's really ordinary now ultimately it's extraordinary but it's ordinary and do it not for recognition not for the applause of others do it for Him. Do it for Him. And watch what the Lord will do with what you do each and every day in order to serve Him and serve His purpose at this time. I See, here's what I'm arguing. I think Ephesians 2 is a simple way forward. I think it always gets complicated when we move away from biblical categories. The, the farther away you move from biblical categories... Oh my, the more complicated everything becomes. This is the message the church has been given. This is our mission for this moment. So if you're wondering what you can do while our country is staring at our differences and arguing about our differences and lamenting our differences, listen, what is going on in our country shouts for the necessity of what Christ alone has done and for the unifying effects of the gospel to be displayed by the church. So we need to remember this because this should be all the more precious to us and pressing upon us at this time because it is only through the message of the gospel that the reconciliation and peace the world longs for and cries out for is realized and experienced not simply imagined. All because of Christ and only because of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Oh my. thank you for inspiring your word and preserving your word with us in mind lord we were in your peripheral vision when this was penned this moment oh thank you for this passage and its relevance i pray that it would have a wonder i pray that it would have a liberating effect on this wonderful church in every way. I pray, I pray, Lord, to have a liberating effect, and I pray it would have a motivating effect so that we would devote ourselves to that which is most important. But most importantly, I pray that we would leave here today more in love with the Son of God than ever before because of the peace He Himself has brought to our hearts, and in our relationships, all because of the cross, all by your grace, and all for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.